brethren, and welcome to the Feast of Tabernacles. I hope you've had a wonderful time so far, uh, whether you're someplace uh, in a feast site all over the globe, or if perhaps you're in your home and enjoying your second time there, whatever the case may be. I hope that you're having a fantastic Feast of Tabernacles. You know, uh, y'all know that these are taped ahead of time, but at the same time, for me, it feels like it's been the Feast of Tabernacles. We actually just had registration a, a little while back, and I'm still working on coordinating uh, the Feast for Branson. So I've been steeped in the Feast of Tabernacles, I feel like, for several weeks. So not only are you in the Feast of Tabernacles, but in my mind, I'm already there. So we're, we're sort of there together. I do hope you're having a fantastic festival. Uh, brethren, I want to jump right to it. If you would turn to Hebrews in chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, we are given some incredible examples of God's people. And there's something in particular I would like to pull from those examples. In Hebrews chapter 11, after discussing a list of, uh, of several of what we call the heroes of faith, it's often called the heroes of faith chapter, in Hebrews chapter 11 and starting in verse 13, we read, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. You notice that verb there, having seen them afar off. God uses that visual talk a lot when it comes to the future. When it comes to seeing what's ahead. And Hebrews 11, frankly, has several examples of that. Let's take a look also at verse 15. It says, And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they'd come out, they would have had opportunity to return. The heroes of Hebrews chapter 11, the heroes that we're seeking to emulate, didn't have in their minds constantly the world they were in. What they were picturing in their minds, what they were thinking about, what they were spending their time meditating on and praying about was the world to come. It was that world ahead, tomorrow's world, that they were so desperately anticipating and wanting and, frankly, craving. Uh, take a look uh, at a later example in the same chapter, starting in verse 24. We read there, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. There's that visual word again. He looked to the reward. When it came to what he was looking at, when it came to what Moses had his eyes set on, they were set on the prize. They were set on that world ahead. They were set on the reward. Verse 27, same thing. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Again, take a look at the language. It was like he could see God ahead. When he took a look at the world around him, he took a look at the power of Egypt, the king, Pharaoh, with his armies and with his wealth and all of that. Moses looked around him, but what looked more real to him? What looked real? 
It's like he could see God. God was more real to him. And that's the kind of vision that God wants of all of us. And what an incredible opportunity the Feast of Tabernacles is to develop that kind of vision, to have our retinas and our corneas spiritually operated on to where we see things the way Moses did, the way Abraham did, to where instead of seeing the world around us where that is the most important thing, the most pressing thing, the most real thing, rather that world ahead of us, tomorrow's world is more real where that's what we see instead of all the problems and trials in this life. And the feast is just a beautiful opportunity that God gives us every single year because it's important to him that we can catch a vision. And so if I were to spend today just talking about all of the things that God wants us to see better, that God wants us to see more clearly, then I would... I would take the whole feast. I would give every single sermon and nobody wants that. And we don't have nearly that much tape. I want to focus on a particular aspect of that kingdom. And I'd like to help all of us see that one aspect a little bit better than perhaps we did before the feast started. If you turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians and chapter... One, I think this. we're just going to pick up on one verse uh, in Philippians chapter 1, but I think it is a beautiful verse. Uh, I think all of us have certain verses that bolster us, that inspire us, that keep us going when things are difficult. And Philippians chapter 1, uh, this passage here, is one of those that does that for me. In Philippians chapter 1, at the beginning, Paul is saying uh, a lot of nice and encouraging things. And he comes down to verse 6 where he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, God is working in us. If we have God's spirit within us, then Jesus Christ is living his life in us. And we know that we experience that and we work with that, doing our best to submit to his rule in our lives, giving him more and more space to create his righteous character within us. The mind of Christ working in our brains instead of the rotten mind that we've inherited from this world. But when it comes to the Feast of Tabernacles, The time that we're picturing is the time when that good work has been completed in us. When that attitude, when that approach has become our permanent and eternal attitude and approach. You know, we read in scriptures how we're going to be ruling with Christ. And if you have not read that passage in Revelation chapter 20, yet this feast or leading up to the feast, I know you're going to read it later. But the saints are going to rule with Jesus Christ, rule the world. And we'll talk about some of those verses in just a little while. The fact is, when that time comes, we will be empowered to rule. It's not just going to be me uh, here in this flesh, this goofy body of mine that I've uh, uh, managed to uh, do so many dumb things with over the years. But I'm going to be empowered 
to rule the world. And you, each of you sitting there, whether you're in a, an auditorium somewhere this feast or you're there in your home on your couch, you're going to be empowered to rule. Can you see that? Can you actually picture that in your mind? Mr. Armstrong did a wonderful job of teaching us about the kingdom of God. And one of the things he said, that the kingdom of God, more than simply just a rule, is the fact that the God family will be ruling. That the kingdom of God could also be thought of like the, the mineral kingdom and the animal kingdom. That there is a God kingdom. And on the other side of the resurrection that we've already thought about and studied about coming with the uh, Feast of Tabernacles is the Feast, uh, sorry, with the Feast of Trumpets, is the Feast of Tabernacles where we're on the other side of that resurrection where it's no longer longing to be in the family of God, no longer longing for those things, but the reality of those things where we're living them day after day after day. That is the reward that's ahead of us, brethren. And no matter how long we live in this life, whether it's 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, that is a drop in the bucket of eternity. If you look with God's eyes, the eternity is so much more real than the life we have now. Can you see that reality, brethren? Do you have a vision of what God is doing in each of us and how He's going to empower us and make us a part of that family so this world will be ruled for the first time in 6,000 years by beings completely and absolutely devoted to the way of God who have all the power and character they need to rule. Because that's the vision I want to help you capture in this sermon and give a glimpse of it so we can talk to each other about it, so we can think about it more and be like Moses, be like Abraham and see those things more clearly than we see the world around us. And that's kind of a tall order. You know, God has asked us to take quite a leap. If you think about the men and women in Hebrews chapter 11, it's a tall leap for them too. Every day they looked around them and they saw the marketplace, they saw uh, pagan worship, they saw a lot of things that could very easily seem more real, but they were able to cultivate that vision. God wants us to cultivate that vision too. So let's take some time in this sermon and think about what it is that God is doing with us, what it is that he plans for us. Now, how do we go about doing that? And some of this may seem somewhat speculative, and that's all right, as long as we put speculation in balance. You know, there are some people that uh, start to speculate on an idea, and it becomes their idea baby, and they won't let go of anything. Well, you know, speculation has its place. Uh, if it's heresy, it has its place in the trash can. If it's speculation, my analogy has always been that uh, uh, in our diet, we have good, solid food, and we have some pleasurable food that maybe not be the most nutritious, but it's okay on occasion and in small amounts. Speculations like that. It's not the meat and potatoes of our spiritual diet, but it can be the potato chips as long as we keep everything in balance. So some of this might be somewhat speculative, but it seems to me in one of the most profitable meditations I've had on this particular topic is if I'm trying to envision what it's going to be like to be on the other side of the resurrection, to be ruling during the millennium in the family of God under Jesus Christ, I try to remember that God is truly making of us his children. And what are his children growing up to be like? They're growing up to be like him. 
my sons, whether they like it or not, are growing up to be like me. And if they want to try to estimate what it's going to be like as an adult, what it's going to be like when they've got older bodies and hopefully more mature minds and more experience, the wisest thing for them to do is to look at me because that's their best projection of what life is going to be like for them in, again, uh, older bodies and wiser minds with more experience. Well, brethren, if God is crafting of us His family and we're trying to peer through that veil to understand what life and experience is going to be like for us, then it behooves us to look at our Father. If we're growing up to be like our dad and we're trying to understand what life is going to be like for us, then we should take a look at what life and experiences are like for him. And so that's the format I want to take today. I want to take a look at a variety of aspects of God's existence and his character and what that's like. And then remind us, brethren, that we will be empowered in that same way to rule with Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at some of those characteristics of our Father that He is working on forming in us and giving to us one day. The first I would like to take a look at is God's perfect character. Brethren, do you realize that all the struggles in this life, when you're struggling against temptation, you're struggling against former addictions, when you're fighting against sin... There is coming a time when we will be ruling in the kingdom of God when those things will be conquered and we will have perfect character like our Father. You know, this world suffers under so many unrighteous rulers. And part of what makes them such horrible rulers is that they don't have that kind of character. God is not going to let His world in the millennium be ruled by people of questionable character. Quite the contrary. We will rule that world and have perfect and righteous character. Let's see some examples of that. If you take a look at the book of Titus. Titus is right there in front of Hebrews. I know we do have new people coming to the feast all the time, and I don't want to assume that you know where all the, all the books are. And sometimes I say things like that just to remind myself. Uh, Titus is, is really close up to the front of Hebrews. It's not right in front of it, but if you aim at Hebrews and go a little bit ahead of that, uh, you will hit it. And Titus chapter 1, we read a remarkable thing. It almost sounds uh, blasphemous to say something like this, but it is true that there are some things God cannot do. Starting in Titus chapter 1 and verse 1, we read, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who can not lie, promised before time began. If you're a parent and any of your children have ever asked you, Mom, Dad, is there anything God can't do? You know, the temptation often is to say, well, no, uh, little Johnny or whoever. God can do anything. The Bible says God can't lie. That goes against everything that is in his nature. There is nothing in God's nature that leans towards being deceptive, leans towards coloring the truth in a wrong way for personal gain. Not a scintilla of his nature is deceptive. 
Brethren, that's what he's giving us. When we're there, those little temptations at work sometimes to maybe misrepresent our activities the last half hour because instead of working on the job, we were surfing the Internet or taking an extra long lunch break. Those temptations will be gone because they will be conquered, will be perfected in that way. He will perfect that, which he is doing in us. Turn to John chapter 17 and verse 17. In, uh, in the book of John, this wonderful passage where Christ is instructing his disciples before his crucifixion and teaching them some vital things. He says in John 17 and verse 17, he asked God and prays to God, sanctify them, sorry, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, brethren, I don't know about you, maybe your character is so much better than mine that you can't relate to that. But I want to be the kind of person, the kind of being, where someone could say, His word is truth. You can trust every vowel, every consonant, every syllable, everything He says. His word is truth. How amazing to have a character so solid and so honest and so sincere that there's not a fraction of a crack in that character to the point that the very definition of truth is the words that come out of your mouth. I can't wait. I can't wait for that to be the permanent state of my life and my character where it's that way for all eternity. Uh, turn also, please, to James chapter 1. Uh, we have another aspect of God's character discussed in James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and let's go, just go straight to verse 13. James tells us in James 1 and verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Evil is not in any way tempting to God. Nothing about it. Again, maybe you're different than me, but evil can be tempting in this world in these bodies of flesh sometimes. You know, the Bible acknowledges that. When it says that Moses resisted sin, leaving Pharaoh's house, it says that it was the passing pleasures of sin. The Bible points out that sin can be pleasurable. And for those of us, all the more who didn't have the benefit of growing up in God's church, like I didn't, Sin is tempting sometimes. There's a draw. There's a pull in this world. And I look forward to having that character then where there is no temptation anymore. When the struggle has reached its fulfillment and it's not tempting anymore. I'm excited about that. Are you excited about that, brethren? If you have been struggling with sin, if you're really in the fight, and I know God's people are in the fight, that's almost part of what defines them. They're not giving in to, to just temptation and just giving up the battle before it's begun. They're engaged in the fight. They're a part of it. They're doing it. If you have been in that fight, if you have been in that struggle, then I know you appreciate the idea with me. I know you appreciate the idea of one day being so solid in our character, so permanent in that good, righteous, godly character, that sin is nothing to you anymore. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. James tells us God cannot be tempted by sin and by evil. There is nothing inside God that prompts him to sin, and there's nothing outside him that could ever tempt him 
to do that. Don't you want to be that way? In this time we're celebrating during the feast, you will be. We all will be. There's one more passage I have to turn to. I, uh, this one that just moves me when I think about one day this passage applying to me in the same way it applied to Jesus Christ. It's in John chapter 14. In John in chapter 14, towards the end of the chapter, we have Christ talking about the fact that Satan is coming for him, that his death in this life was on its way. And he makes this comment towards the end of the chapter. Uh, just to get some context, I'll start in verse 29 of John 14. He says, And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much uh, with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. I look forward to being able to say that. I look forward to being able to say that all that he had in me, all the, the junk that I had accumulated in the past that I've been struggling against is gone. And he has absolutely nothing in me. Brethren, if you have been struggling with sin, if you've been in the fight like we're all supposed to be, then that time we're trying to picture is a time when that fight has been won. And we will have perfect and righteous character and be able to rule accordingly. Try to see it. Try to picture it, brethren. Let's take a look at another characteristic of the Father. Recognizing, again, that if it's a characteristic of the Father, it will be a characteristic of the Son and of the Daughter. And that is the fact that we are going to have powerful bodies. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. Oh, I'm looking in the Old Testament. If you didn't know, brethren, 1 Corinthians is actually in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, it is often called the resurrection chapter uh, by folks like us because it describes in so many ways uh, what that's going to be like. We'll see in, a, in, a, in just a second. That's exactly what Paul was trying to describe was the resurrection and what we're going to be like at that time. So uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and let's uh, pick it up in verse 35. We read, uh, but someone will say, Paul says in verse 35, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? That's what we're asking right now. What body is it, what's it going to be like? What kind of body will we have in that time? Now he goes on in verse 36 to say, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Well, I'm not going to call you foolish. Uh, I've got the same question. But the Bible does tell us, and that's what he's saying. He's saying you've missed it. The Bible does discuss those things. You've got to dig it out. You've got to put it together, like Mr. Armstrong always taught us. And he does give some details. I'm not going to read them all, but I greatly encourage you this feast to read 1 Corinthians 15 and remind yourself that your existence in this time is being described in this chapter. We're going to go ahead and jump ahead to verse 42. Verse 42 of 1 Corinthians 15. It tells us, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. Brethren, all those aches, all those pains, 
all those things that continuously go wrong. I've, I've got some uh, widows in my area and such whom I just love dearly. And if any of you are watching, I love you so much. I hope you're having a wonderful feast. But we've talked about how, you know, these bodies aren't going to last forever. And sometimes the warranty starts running out and things start going bad. That's not going to be that way anymore. Legs that don't work, arms that don't work, mouths that don't speak like the way they should. Those things are going to be gone. Gone. Perfect, incorruptible bodies of power that we can scarcely imagine. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. As it says later in verse 44, it is sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, he says, and there is a spiritual body. He's saying that for those who don't understand that you can't have a spirit body, you can have a spirit body. Going up one in verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. If you're like me, that's hard to imagine. It is hard to imagine. I grew up with a stupid past stuck on movies and comic books and all the rest. And it's even hard for me to comprehend the difference that's going to make. But I want to focus on I want to think about that and truly see the time ahead. Now, let's make some interesting comments about our appearance. The Bible does talk about our appearance. Turn to Daniel in chapter 12. In the book of Daniel and chapter 12. I do believe it's still in my Bible. I bet I find it. Oh, there it is. Daniel in chapter 12. And at the beginning of this chapter, there's this prophecy of the end time. And I just want to capture this one particular comment in that. Uh, starting in, it, it mentions the resurrection in verse 2. And in verse 3, it says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, can I help myself? I feel I have to point out, notice the role of doing the work in the time leading up to the resurrection. It doesn't say those who wild away their time sitting still, twiddling their thumbs and not being involved in turning many to righteousness. It says those who turn many to righteousness are going to shine like the stars forever and ever. Don't let anyone, brethren, just to take a quick side note, don't let anyone convince you that there is not a work to do in this age. Our eternal salvation, that future state we're discussing, is tied to having a passion for turning many to righteousness. Don't let anybody do that to you in this age, because there are many, frankly, who would try. But can you imagine being described in that way, shining like the stars forever and ever? Uh, they turn all the lights off and they're still alive. Why? Because it's you. Because you're glowing. Uh, as a kid, I had read about uh, Isaac Newton, I think, uh, looking at the sun. He would experiment and stare at the sun for long periods of time. Yeah, he, he did some odd things. Well, we learned a lot from those odd things. And I would sometimes stare at the sun, thankfully, not too long. And oh, then I tried to turn away and I couldn't. Get the image out of my retina. In fact, if I'm not careful, I can look at these lights and do the same thing. In fact, uh, I'm, I'm kind of losing my hair or this. You might be experiencing the same thing while I'm watching, uh, while you're watching me. And can you imagine staring at someone like that and it's that bright and you close your eyes and there's still this image? 
And it's a human being. Well, what was a human being? It's a person. Can you imagine it being you? That will be a part of our appearance. Uh, Turn to Revelation and chapter 1. A lot of you know where I'm going with this. In Revelation chapter 1. Jesus Christ is already living this existence right now in heaven. And we are told in Scripture after Scripture after Scripture that the glory He has is the glory the Father intends for us. The manner in which He exists is the manner in which we will exist. The inheritance given to Him is the inheritance that is going to be given to us. So when we read this remarkable description about the appearance of Christ... It is not unbiblical, brethren, to think that this is a reflection of the existence one day we're going to share in some way. Uh, Take a look at Revelation in chapter 1, if we go to verse 12. We read here, John speaking, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man... Jesus Christ, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a gold band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice was as the sound of many waters. Now, that we think, well, many waters, what is that? We just try to imagine what that sounds like. And I think once I did a sermon and I, I brought a recording of Niagara Falls and the roar of that water. But this passage meant more to the people in the first century than sometimes it means to us, unless we're familiar with our Old Testament. Because in Ezekiel chapter 43, I did write it down to make sure I got it right. In Ezekiel chapter 43, the God of the Old Testament in verses 1 and 2 is described as having a voice like the sound of many waters. They understood what John was saying. This was the Son of Man. This was Jesus Christ. But this was a God being. This was that being that you read about in the Old Testament, working as the intermediary even then between the Father and the people that He loved. And brethren, that is us. We're going to be living like that. Can you imagine that. Read the descriptions of the visions of God with in Ezekiel and Isaiah. And can you imagine being that kind of being? We're going to grow up and look like our father. We're not going to look like this. I'm so thankful I'm not going to be stuck looking like this for all eternity. I'm going to look like my father. I'm not going to have to wrestle with, oh, I drank too much Dr. Pepper again, and oh, I gained another four pounds or so. I'm going to look like my dad. I'm going to have this amazing body that where my knees don't ache, where my back doesn't hurt. When I get out of bed, I'm going to have a body like his, a body meant to last forever. And more than that, you know, the title of this sermon, I think I mentioned, was Empowered to Rule. Our bodies will be more than just something to enjoy and appreciate, but they will be tools for us to possibly teach and to teach others in the millennium. Let's look at an example of Jesus Christ doing exactly that. Turn to John chapter 20. 
That's one of the remarkable things about God, brethren. It's never just about Him. In a sense, He does ask us to focus on Him, make Him the center of everything. But it's only so we can learn to do like He does, to make others what's important to us, to give. It's almost contradictory, but it's not. And it's so beautiful. So He wants us to learn to be like Him. And our bodies, these incredible bodies we're going to have, will be potential tools for us to teach just like they were for Jesus Christ. If you turn to John chapter 20, and we'll start in verse 24. We read there, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Verse 26, And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your side here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. You know, Jesus could have showed up. He just could have reprimanded Thomas. You know, I, I have to admit, as, with a, as a mathematician and with a background that's more rooted perhaps in skepticism and analyzing assumptions and the rest and and frankly, a good bit of self-righteousness. I do tend to trust my judgment over the evidence that I have in the past. And thankfully, God has helped me to overcome a lot of that. But I sympathize with Thomas. Here are the men that were his closest friends in the world for years, serving and frankly suffering under Jesus Christ. And even though all of them are telling him, he's real, Thomas, he's alive, we've seen him. What does Thomas do? Does he go, oh, you guys, are, you're kidding, that's wonderful. No, he sticks to his guns and says, you're all crazy. There is no way he's alive unless I stick my fingers in the holes in his hands and I put my hand in his side. I cannot believe it. Jesus Christ could have just upraised. He could have showed up and said, Thomas, you're a fool. How can you deny all this evidence? He could have just reprimanded him and just whipped him 40 ways to next week. Instead, he did what Thomas needed for Thomas to believe. For Thomas to understand. He was about teaching Thomas. Here was someone who had a difficulty being with the rest and understanding what they understood. And he took Thomas and said, Thomas, if you need this to believe, here it is. Put your fingers in the holes. Put your hand in the side. Don't be unbelieving, Thomas, but believe. You know, when I think about that, there's a movie that I saw in my teenage years that I could never recommend. It was truly horrible. And now that I know better, I would never watch it. But in it, uh, the, the special effects guys were using makeup and such to try to picture what it would be like in an afterlife. And it was horrible. Everybody there had bodies as if, uh, like, whatever they had died. If they died being run over, then in their body in the afterlife, they looked like they'd been run over. If it was by a steamroller, then you were a pancake for, for all eternity. It was hideous and stupid. 
Jesus Christ, we just saw in Revelation, doesn't always look like that. He doesn't walk around looking for eternity like a guy that's been beaten with bloodstains all over him and broken flesh and holes in his body. We saw that in Revelation chapter 1. So what can we conclude? We can conclude that in this reality, he had the ability to change his form and to be what Thomas needed him to be. And again, this is speculation, but I can imagine, brethren, in the millennium, when a little child is lost in a forest and not worried about bears or snakes because that's not a problem anymore, right? But just can't remember where home is, is just lost. You know, even though a lot of things will be better in the millennium, foolishness will still be bound up in the heart of a child. It takes a while to grow out of some of that. And, you know, as a spirit being, if I want to help that child find its way home, I'm not going to appear before that child if I have a choice, like it does in Revelation 1. Hello, child, run! Have the child, ah! Just scream and run the other way. You know, there's options we might have. Could we appear to that child like another child and say, hey, come on with me. You know, come, you know, I'll take you back to mom and dad. Let's, let's, let's go there or let's go here and play. Again, speculation, brethren, but I can imagine it in scenes like this in the Bible. Help me to picture what it will be like to be empowered to rule, empowered to teach, empowered to be what this world needs, to the point that even our own bodies are a tool. Certainly we'll enjoy these bodies. I'm looking forward to not being tired anymore. The Bible says that, uh, that the eternal never slumbers, never sleeps. He's full of energy, vim and vigor all the time. He doesn't need caffeine drinks or anything like that. He's just got it all the time. Wow, do I look forward to being that. I mean, if I could just get half of that, I might grow to the level of, say, a Mr. Apartian or something. Uh, I would love to have that kind of energy all the time, and I will. But more than that, we'll be empowered to serve. We'll be empowered. We'll have bodies that will enable us to do the task we need to do. Let's take a look at a third aspect of that future existence that we don't know the details of, but the Bible does give us peaks. The fact is, we understand about God that his relationship to time and space is totally different than ours. It's not the same. Uh, when it comes to space, we can take a look at Psalm 139. Beautiful passage. One of the most encouraging passages. If you're feeling alone, uh, you're not sure if God really knows what's going on. If he's, if he's on the job, he is on the job, brethren. Uh, Psalm 139 helps communicate that. God isn't bound by space in the same way we are. Now, that does not mean he's a blob, brethren. We've already covered that. But through his spirit, he has access to everything, everywhere. In Psalm 139, we read this beautiful passage. We'll start in verse 7. David says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell or the grave, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You know, it says in verse 12, Even Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but as night shines as the day, the darkness and the light are both alike to you. Nothing can hide from God. 
You know, in this world, there's conspiring plans. We can't see into the walls of the inner rooms in Iran or North Korea or places where, you know, America, they would love to be in there and spy and find out. The world will be open to us to truly administer justice, not based on guesswork, but based on the facts. But more than that, and this is what I think is particularly fascinating, is the idea of having a different relationship with time. Uh, we're, a lot of us are familiar with it. Please note it in your notes, but for the sake of time, I won't turn there. Second uh, Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, where we're told that one day is as a thousand years with God, and a thousand years is like one day. Now, that's weird. If it had just said one day is as a thousand years, well, that's one way. It's like one day to him it's like a thousand years and that he sees every minute detail as if it was just all blown up to him. But also the other way around. And that one uh, thousand years is like a single day. That it passes like that. You know, to me, again, this is me personally. And I am sharing with you, in a sense, my own meditation and my own reflection on these things. This solves what I tend to call the expertise problem. You know, there are a lot of people in the church, and I know this because I've, I've been there. I'm, I'm not saying that I'm immune to this. But they can't fathom being a ruler in the kingdom of God because they don't see themselves as having that kind of experience. They don't see themselves as thinking, well, I've, I've never run a city. I've, I've never even, uh, you know, run a business. I don't have expertise about city planning and sewer systems and... Uh, urban renewal or all those kind of things. I don't know anything like that. I'm, I'm a farmer. I know planting and growing corn. I'm a mathematician. I know how to push a pencil on a piece of paper and, and type into a spreadsheet program and those kinds of things. Well, brethren, let me just ask you something. What if you were given some miraculous gift where you could spend every second of every hour of every day studying the topic of your choice. I don't know what it would be. Uh, pick, pick music. Uh, pick playing the violin. Now, some of you know how to play the violin already. You have to imagine something else. I don't. I've always wished I could play the violin. And let's say you didn't need sleep. You didn't need food. Uh, you were never bored, never tired. You were like uh, the Energizer Bunny. Every second, every minute, every hour of every day, you're studying and learning and absorbing knowledge. And every expert in the world on the subject is made available to you. And you have infinite resources. Every book is yours. Every tutor, every instructor is yours. And you, again, you never tired, never had to sleep. How long do you think it would take you to master some of those things? Well, I don't know, maybe a year to really master it, we could say a year, I don't know. I would think it would take much long, less. I mean, think about it. We have people that master uh, medical degrees in a few years, and they pour their lives into that. And they do have to eat. They do have to drink. They do have to sleep and take a break. And yet, within a relatively short number of years, they master these incredibly complex fields. Imagine if you had limitless energy and time and strength. Well, how many things could you master, not just in a year, but in five years? Constant studying, constant learning, never tiring, never sleeping. What, how much could you learn in 10 years, 20 years? How much could you learn in 30 years? How much could you learn in 100 years? 
How much could you learn in 500 years? Brethren, how much could you learn in a thousand years? What kind of expert could you be if your brain just kept expanding and you could learn anything you wanted? Limitless resources, limitless time over the course of a thousand years. You'd be the most brilliant person that ever walked the earth. Master of all trades. Or brethren, for God, a thousand years is like a day. That kind of effort, that's a day. And that's where God is taking us. He's bringing us to that life, to that existence. A thousand years is like a day. If you could master all of that in a thousand years, fine, give yourself a day after the resurrection to master all of that. Because we don't have to worry about that kind of expertise. The expertise God wants us to have is in His law and living His way and administering righteous judgment. That's what the experts can't do. That's what the city planners don't understand is what this book says and how to apply these principles. So in this life, if you will focus on godly character, if we will focus on learning, striving to have the mind of God, he can take care of the rest. There will be widows who their entire life was spent on simply trying to nourish their children and then their grandchildren in the way of God. Trying to teach them, you know, little Johnny, little Susie, this is how we live this way. This is what we do. This is what we do when your friends say nasty things. Serving her husband, serving her family, and then perhaps after his death, just struggling in prayer to serve the church in whatever way she can, who will be ruling nations and cities with expertise that the experts in this world could never fathom because she focused on the character. If we work with God and allow him to develop that character, he can take care of the rest because our relationship to time and space will be completely different. So let's move on. I'm running out of time. I need to move on to the next thing. Uh, one thing I do like to point out is when we're going to be ruling, because I've been a high school teacher. I've known the, uh, uh, the situation where you're faced with, you know, 30 teenagers and teaching them math of all things. Almost nobody wanted to be there. They don't want to be there and learn math. And why? I don't know. It's the most beautiful subject. It's so poetic. And uh, I remember there was a time I was thinking, uh, there in front of my classroom once. It was particularly a rough classroom. And there's a hymn, of course, we have that says, Rise, O Lord, put them all in fear. Like, Rise, O Lord, put them all in fear. You know, keep them, keep, help keep this classroom in control so I could teach them something. Well, brethren, in that kingdom, we're going to be ruling, we're going to be judging, we're going to be saving and helping and serving, not as human beings, but we'll have the ability to do so as God does so. Take a look at what God says about himself and his authority in the world in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy in chapter 32. Oops, passed it myself. In Deuteronomy in chapter 32 and verse 39. God says of himself, now see that I, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. Because other than the God family right now, we're not a part of that yet. There is just him. There's not an Athena, a Zeus, a Hera, and all that other silly garbage. He says, I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. You know, God says more than we're going to rule the nations. We will have the power and authority to punish when necessary and to reward and heal when necessary. 
Let's read that passage in Revelation chapter 2. A promise to us, brethren. He's not going to put us in charge of all of this and not give us the power and authority to administer justice and also heal the wounded. You know, sometimes, brethren, we, we watch the TV news. We watch things going on in this world. And if you're like me, it angers me. When I see injustice, when I see people flaunting the laws of God or taking, a disadvantage, taking advantage of the poor and the needy, and it makes me angry and I want to be able to do something about it. And I don't think it's a wrong anger. I'm not just wanting to go around punching people in the face, but I want to correct it. I want to make it right. We'll be able to do that, brethren. There's a promise given to us in Revelation in chapter 2 and verse 26. We are told, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. Brethren, there will be time when we will need the rod of iron. Mr. Meredith has made that so clear and so understandable because there are some personalities that know no authority other than the rod of iron. They will need that rod to be brought into line. It's a loving act to do that for the sake of their people and frankly for the sake of their own character. You've likely already read the passage uh, in Zechariah where it says the people will be coming up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, but that some nations say Egypt if they do not come up. What does it say in that passage? It doesn't say, if Egypt does not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, then a complaint shall be written and submitted to the United Nations. And the United Nations shall debate it uh, for seven months, and upon not coming to a conclusion, uh, they shall agree to meet in council again, uh, forthwith, heretofore, blah, blah, blah. That's stupid. That's not how you rule a world. That's not how you actually have authority. There will be no rain on those nations. I can imagine this general standing in the rain waiting for the onslaught from Jerusalem. He says, we are not going to this Feast of Tabernacles on this Jewish God. And he's got all of his tanks and all of his soldiers. And he's standing in some noble pose because a lot of these guys you know, think a lot of themselves. And the rain is coming down on him and it's lightning and thunder. And it just adds to his glory. He's thinking, this is my greatest moment. I'm going to resist this new regime in Jerusalem. And as he's standing there... And the armies don't show up. There's just no tanks. There's no soldiers. But instead, suddenly the rain stops. And suddenly it's hot. And then he looks on the ground and the little pools of water just, just got to dry up. And he would have to realize he's not dealing with a normal earthly ruler. He is dealing with the God family who will have real power to enforce justice and righteousness. But that's not the other end. It's not just power to use a rod of iron. It's also power to heal, power to, to raise people up. Um, turn to Romans in chapter 8, if you will. Romans in chapter 8. It's a beautiful chapter. I mean, the entire chapter, Romans chapter 8, is just absolutely uh, breathtaking. But I just want to look at a particular passage, one of my favorites in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 22. We'll go a little bit out of order. Verse 22, Paul says, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. The entire creation is hungry for us to come into existence. You know, uh, I wrote it down. We won't turn there, but 
most of you are familiar with the story in Luke chapter 19 where he's coming into Jerusalem and the rabbis are saying, because the, the people are saying, oh, you know, hail, it's, 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 it's the Messiah, it's, it's uh, this uh, king who's coming. And the rabbis and authorities are saying, you need to stop your disciples from saying that. You need, this is just wrong. They need to shut their mouths. You need to tell them to stop that. And Jesus Christ says, if I were to do that and they were to stop, the stones themselves would cry out. Because the rule of the family of God is not just going to impact the people and the governments. The entire world is going to be a different place. And it, the way it is put in Romans chapter 8 is remarkable. If we go back up just a couple of verses, let's go to verse 20. It says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The birth of the family of God in mass on that day of resurrection and the rule of the millennium is something the entire creation is hearkening for and wanting. It doesn't want decay anymore. It doesn't want death and destruction and pain and suffering. And we will have the power, brethren, to put an end to those things. I've got a personal fantasy that I think I can tell without falling apart. It's kind of difficult, but I... uh you know, there's so much suffering in this world. And one of the most horrible things in this world that's accumulated is landmines. And some of you are familiar with the damage a landmine can do. Because so many armies have laid landmines across the planet and they don't know where they all are. And it's too dangerous to go out looking for them because you might step on one yourself. And so often you hear stories of uh, children who've been maimed by some old landmine that's been there for years and years. And my my my, my personal fantasy in that regard is and i don't we don't know the exact detail of when christ returns i don't know how old my children will be uh, but i do imagine one of my sons maybe jonathan michael benjamin david i don't know which one but if he had enough time to be old enough to choose this way and to be on the other side of the resurrection with us in the family of god and maybe some poor arab girl and so many of those war-torn nations that have seen so much violence. And I imagine this poor Arab girl, her legs just shredded, unable to walk, just in pain every day by some landmine that she had. A landmine she had nothing to do with. Just an innocent child, not able to walk in pain. And I imagine one of my sons glorified in that kingdom, able to serve, able to liberate, maybe descending from the sky and going up to that child and just with his hands waving them down her legs and suddenly they're whole again. Like the legs she was born to have and she's able to jump and leap and praise God. Not just any God, but that Jewish God that her people for so long had hated and despised, just praising Him. Brethren, we're going to have the ability to do that. Have you ever had any calling in your life? Has anyone ever pressed you to a more worthy goal, to a more worthy calling than this? I can't imagine. I can't imagine. I know that I haven't. You know, all of this, frankly, brethren, is barely scratching the surface. You know the old saying that uh, this is only the tip of the iceberg? Brethren, this isn't even the top molecule on the tip of the iceberg. There's a beautiful passage in Job. If you turn to Job chapter 26, 
Uh, Job is right there before the Psalms. The Psalms are easy to find. It's a nice big book. Job chapter 26. And after this incredible description of God in the book of Job, not the one later in the book, but it is really an incredible description in Job 26, he makes this incredible statement that is almost too wonderful for me. Like, like uh, David says at times, or Solomon in the Proverbs. In Job chapter 26, after discussing these amazing characteristics and how awesome the God of creation is, he climaxes and sums it up in verse 14. And says, indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. And how small a whisper we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Brethren, that reality ahead of us. We could take all day talking about these things. And we will barely scratch the surface of how we will be empowered to rule and to serve and to love like God does in that world. Let me just give you one more example because it's one that that I that is just it blows my mind when I think of it. And I just think, wow, is really God that amazing? Is he that powerful? And is that reality truly what he wants for me? Um Let's imagine that the telecast goes fantastically and, uh, you know, say Mr. King gets up and says, uh, you know, we need to do this. And just boom, the whole world, uh, seven billion people want to get converted. They want to be baptized and and they want to repent. Wouldn't that be a, a great day? And the entire world, seven billion people decide to kneel and pray to the true God in heaven. Would God have a problem with that? Would God say, oh, the lines are really jammed, you know, and he's trying to get through and it's like a cell phone where it's like, oh, we can't get a connection. We can't get through. The lines are too busy. Have you ever thought about that? Would God have a difficulty with seven billion people praying at the same time? I don't think so. I think it'd be just like it is when you and I pray. There's times when my wife and I are praying and I'm not worried that, well, God's busy listening to her so he can't hear me. No. It's like I'm in the same room with him, one-on-one. Two people, seven billion people. Won't make a difference. God would be in the same room with them, hearing that prayer of every individual as if that were the only person praying. Can you fathom the kind of mind that God must have? Can you fathom the kind of existence that God must have? And can you fathom that He wants to share that existence with us? Brethren, we are promised by God Almighty that that future time, that that future revelation of the children of God will be so incredible, so phenomenal, that the suffering of this world isn't worthy to be compared to it. Brethren, we will be empowered to serve. And if we can believe in this future, if we can see it, if we can believe it, if it's a part of us, and if we don't doubt it, if we really know that it is coming, that it is going to be here, brethren, that'll change everything. It'll change everything. This Feast of Tabernacles, I encourage you, no matter where you are, take full advantage of this opportunity. Talk about it 
amongst yourselves. Spend time on your knees asking God, pleading with God to help you see it more clearly, to help you believe it, to make it a part of you. They'll never go away, brethren. Take advantage of this time to catch a vision of that kingdom during this feast. Thank you for the opportunity and please have a wonderful Feast of Tabernacles.